When we think about fundraising, the single greatest challenge or obstacle that I feel like all nonprofit space is all too often, we take this tin cup approach and sort of begging for alms approach to fundraising. And there's a story about a young man who'd gone to become a philanthropist and a celebrity who was in a philosophy class hearing about is this glass half full or half empty? All the students couldn't figure it out, but his grandmother with a second grade education said, oh, well, it depends on whether you're pouring or drinking. And when nonprofits fundraise from a tin cup perspective, it is rooted in this idea that we are the drinkers because we rely on charitable contributions to do this work. But ultimately, the thing I want to say is nothing could be further from the truth. We are the pourers. We are the nurturers of society. And as I shared earlier, what we as a global movement with a capital M, all the nonprofits, all the associations out there do is that we connect people and organizations with resources to the change they want to see in the world. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Darian rodriguez Heyman founder and CEO of Helping People Help, former executive director of the Craigslist Foundation, among many, many other things and responsibilities. So Darian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Darian, tell us about your organization, Helping People Help. Yeah, so Helping People Help is a a boutique nonprofit consultancy. We work exclusively with mission-led organizations, typically nonprofits and associations, but also philanthropists, impact investors, and mission-led businesses. Across the board, what we do is we help connect them to best practices, helpful resources, and the contacts they need to maximize impact. And unlike most consultancies where there's sort of a set bench of, you know, a team that they plug into every engagement, it's really just me. And what happens is based on the unique needs and the areas of focus of the clients, I put together sort of custom, assembled, bespoke, typically very overqualified teams to really help them execute against a clearly defined scope of work and address their needs. So Darian, where do you find these amazing overqualified people who are then available for these amazing engagements? I mean, I've been doing this work for 25 years, along with all the various chapters of my career. I've written two best-selling books on nonprofit management and nonprofit fundraising, each of which was essentially an anthology where I collected insights from about 50 plus experts. And so just from the books alone, I, I developed a huge network of subject matter experts, but I've been doing this work for 25 years and producing conferences and involved in lots of different consulting engagements, running nonprofits, chairing nonprofit boards. And so in that two and a half decades, I've just come across some really talented folks, especially women and people of color who 
aren't as you know busy and don't have the same pipeline that I have, but are really talented at what they do, whether that's fundraising, board strategy, which are kind of the big things that I tend to focus on, but also nonprofit financials, HR, IT, you name it. Darian, you say that you work with organizations that are trying to make some kind of a social impact. And you work with nonprofits, but also some for-profit organizations. So how does that work for a for-profit organization trying to make some kind of a social impact? Because normally you think of nonprofits as having a social impact mission. Absolutely. I would say in general, all nonprofits have a social mission. That's part of the foundation. But what is increasingly true is more and more businesses are looking at business as a force for social change. And so, for example, I just recently wrapped up an engagement as the part-time executive director at NUMI Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of NUMI Organic Tea. They were one of the first 10 B Corps. They were one of the largest organic and fair trade tea companies, very committed to addressing climate change, very committed to empowering and improving the livelihood of the farmers. They also helped to create something called OSC Squared, which was a whole network of like-minded CEOs of sustainable food and beverage companies. And so they were really committed to leveraging every platform they had to make the world a better place. And so I worked with them to help launch the foundation and run that and do the fundraising and the programs for it. But I've also worked with a range of other companies, Alter Eco Chocolates and Thanksgiving Coffee and other companies that want to make the world a better place through their business or through setting up a foundation. I've also worked with individuals. I worked with a high net worth uh, family to help distribute $20 million of grants, mostly in Dayton, Ohio, with a focus on advancing racial equity and really took them through a process of deciding what was important to them and how they wanted to impact the world in a positive way. And so it kind of ranges. I've done a lot of work in impact investing where investors are looking to not only get their money back plus a return, but also use it as a force to make the world a better place. And I've done that in particular in the gender space Hmm. where investment can be a very powerful tool to help support women-led businesses and businesses that serve women and girls. Boy, that's really heartening. I know that the social mission of my company, Matrix Group, I mean, we say that we help associations and nonprofits change the world. I know that that's been important for the culture of the organization, for recruiting, for retention, but also just in general, I think it makes people feel good at the end of the day about the work that they're doing. Yeah, and that's increasingly important. I mean, about a decade ago, we hit the tipping point where the majority of consumers in this country are willing to pay more for a product if they agree with the values that it represents. Ah. And at the same time, now it's you know one of the top considerations for the millennials and the Gen Zers, you know, younger people today, they're not really interested in working with a company if they don't see yes. that that company is committed to some kind of positive impact in the communities where it works. So this is increasingly important. Wow. Well, we got a lot to talk about, you know, with the organizations that you work with and the approach that you have at helping people help. But let's first talk about your journey. You have an amazing background. So where do we begin? Well, let's see. I mean, the Short version is that I'm a bit of a dot-com refugee. So mm. right out of college, I started what turned out to be one of the first digital advertising agencies in the mid to late 90s. And which one was that? It was called Beyond Interactive. It exploded. We grew at 600% a year for four years in a row, peaked at almost 400 employees in over 20 countries, half a billion dollars in annual billings. And most importantly to me, we had 22 married couples come out of that company. Wow. Wow. So it was very much a family. 
And in 2001, after we had sold the company, when the economy tanked, it stopped being as much fun. We had to go through massive layoffs of my roommates and best friends. And so, you know, my heart wasn't in it after that. I went on what turned out to be my first of three six-month sabbaticals, where I traveled the world without a plan, without a guidebook or an itinerary, and just sort of leaned into the universe to see what came and embraced serendipity. And in the process of traveling, that was also when September 11th happened, during which I was in Istanbul. And on that journey, I really decided that life is too short. I'm sort of done focusing my career on making money for myself and other people. And I really wanted to devote the remainder of my career and my life to social impact and philanthropy. And so that's the work I've been doing since for the last 25 years. And really what, you know, the first entree was one of my old dot-com contacts was on the board of the defunct Craigslist Foundation, which hadn't even had a board meeting for two years. He recruited me because he saw some of the work I was doing. I came in, sort of talked with a lot of nonprofits about what was missing and how it would relate to the Craigslist ethos and brand. And what I landed on was that Craigslist is about people helping people, and the foundation should be about helping people help, which is where I got my life's mission statement. And really what we did is we created something that I called Nonprofit Bootcamp. It was sort of Lollapalooza for nonprofits. Within a year, it became the largest nonprofit gathering in Bayeria history. And sort of in one day, we covered all aspects of starting and running a nonprofit. We had 100 partner organizations, basically everyone that supports nonprofits in the Bay and the San Francisco area was under one roof talking about their resources and And then we took that to New York and Chicago. And so that was sort of my second career, if you will, started to get involved in a little bit of environmental work when then Mayor Gavin Newsom appointed me to the Environment Commission. And that environmental work is really what I decided to focus on in my second sabbatical in 2008, when I wrote my first book, Nonprofit Management 101, came back, did a deep dive into the green economy space, got to work with Richard Branson and and Bill McDonough, and I'm quite committed to addressing climate change, also started working pretty closely with the United Nations at the time. And then when I went on my third, and I kind of knew it at the time, final sabbatical, and I wrote the nonprofit fundraising book, I connected with some buddies at the UN who, and especially your listeners that are familiar with the sustainable development goals, right? a lot of people don't know that their predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals, were basically created by seven white dudes sitting around a table deciding what the future of the world should be. And so Ban Ki-moon decided that they should take a different approach to setting what are now the SDGs, got 50 million votes. And I connected with them halfway through that process where women's voices were underrepresented, the environment wasn't showing up. So I did a big pro bono project to basically get out the vote that helped indirectly inform some of the SDGs around gender and climate. And it led to some work I've done since in the gender world, starting Gender Smart, which we mentioned in the impact investing space, serving on the board of Planned Parenthood for the Western Hemisphere. And also while I was traveling, I did a bunch of pro bono work in Africa, including for NUMI Foundation, where I was the board chair at the time. And that experience, because it was really my first field work. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, normally I'm hoping other people change the world. And I got to meet the 4,000 people that were drinking water out of the same river they used as a toilet. And within six months of my trip, we had fully funded and built 23 wells, completely transformed these communities. And it was a really powerful experience for me. And that led to me deciding to take on the part-time ED role there and transition out of my board role. Darian, when somebody says, I want to take a sabbatical, you know, sometimes they do it just because they're burned out and they're trying to rejuvenate themselves. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who 
you know, maybe like you is looking to bookend something and thinking about starting something else, but they don't quite know what that next is. So what advice would you give them? I mean, I, I think it ranges so widely depending upon the person, their circumstances, and really what it takes for them to follow their bliss. But ultimately, I think in the US, the American culture, we're so busy going from one thing to the next. Just as one quick data point, we get the least amount of vacation days of any country in the world hmm. and we use the lowest percentage of the days we get. Ah. So we push ourselves hard. And in the nonprofit world, it tends to be even worse. And one of the things that got me into executive coaching was finding out about 20 years ago that 50% of nonprofit executive directors leave not only their job, but leave the sector within five years. Because they're so burned out. Because they get burned out. Well, the number one source of frustration was fundraising and number two was boards. And so that led directly to me deciding to really focus on helping nonprofits and associations and other mission-led groups with their fundraising and board needs. The report also highlighted the fact that executive coaching was the most cost-effective way to address that. And so that led to some of that work. But ultimately, like I said, the path is different for different folks. Some folks like to go into Vipassana and spend 10 days in silence. Some people like to do yoga or go hiking and camp out on their own. For me, you know, I am a fundraiser and I'm also an, a serial social entrepreneur. So I'm constantly building projects, organizations, teams, and I'm generally the one putting food on the table for everybody around me. And that creates a lot of responsibility. I love it. But after seven years, it can get a little taxing. And so I really found it helpful to do the exact opposite of that. And instead of being in this ecosystem, and I'm very extroverted, I went traveling for six months. I had no itinerary. I had no accommodations, no flights book, no guidebooks. And I just thought of it as leaning into the universe and embracing serendipity and just being open to meeting people, seeing what sounded interesting, and then going and doing that and just sort of allowing myself to float and being responsible for only myself. And every time I did that after six months, I just sort of got the epiphany. Uh, I called it epiphany hunting, but I got the insight I was looking for about this is exactly what I want to do next. And what I found is when I came back to the, you know, quote unquote real world with that clarity, the road rose up to meet me and I was able to do that in a way that I never would have thought possible. Boy, that sounds amazing. So it sounds like you really gave yourself the time and space to be open to the universe about what the next possibility was for you. Absolutely. I just went in with an open mind. Darian, you talk a lot about fundraising and you say that you are a fundraiser. You know, many organizations that I work with complain about how difficult fundraising is. And they talk a lot about the challenges associated with engaging their board with fundraising. I think you've done a lot of work in this area. What would you tell my clients and my listeners? It's probably the deepest area of my personal consulting work, just because, like I said, fundraising and boards are the two top of the list frustrations for EDs. And when you put them together, in my experience, it can be very challenging, especially because you know most folks don't recognize that 50% of the 1.8 million nonprofits in this country have budgets underneath 100 grand. Wow. We're a small grassroots sector with a lot of pure volunteer-run efforts. Then there's some that kind of punch through the six-figure barrier and you start having enough budget for staff and things like that, but you're still very much under-resourced. And that's where a lot of the sector exists. And in that case, when you're in that middle ground, you kind of need your board to be almost like a working board and an extension of the staff. Right. And in particular, the most difficult transition that I've found is going from that working board into a strategic 
governing fundraising board that is there to help set the direction and marshal the resources to execute against it. And when it comes time for those lucky nonprofits that through leadership and commitment and a compelling mission to sort of graduate, a lot of them are sort of hoping and expecting the board to come along with them, but they don't invest the time and the energy needed to facilitate that transition. So oftentimes I'll hear people complain about how their board is not really being helpful with fundraising. And the first thing I talk to them about is this is not the board's responsibility. Mm. This is your responsibility as staff to help make sure that they are clear on what is expected of them. What is their highest and best purpose? How do the pieces all fit together? And so ultimately what's needed is a bit of a culture shift and a reboot, but it has to be handled in a way where there's a firm commitment to graceful transitions. Because what you never want to do is say, you know, thanks for getting us to this point. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Our needs have changed. You want them to be proud. You want to tell that board member, because of your unwavering commitment, because of your contributions, we are now at this inflection point. Bigger things are ahead. We're going to raise more money. We're going to serve more people. We're going to advance our mission in a much more significant way. And in the context of that, maybe it makes sense for us to revisit the highest and the best purpose of the board. So the first thing to keep in mind is that the staff needs to catalyze this, but at the same time, this effort needs to be board-led. Ah, Because no matter how hard you try and how you message it, if you move the goalposts and say, well, now all of you need to fundraise, it's never going to go over well. It has to be the board's idea, even if you spoon feed it to them and lead them to a very logical conclusion. So, you know, it has to be board led, typically by the chair or the governance chair. It can be a consultant that comes in with sort of the best practice hat. But ultimately, it starts with a bit of a rah-rah speech of like, thanks to the hard work of this group, we're at this exciting point. Now let's revisit, you know, how we can best serve. And the board has to get excited about that transition, step one. Step two, it has to be framed less about what the organization needs and more about the board members. So it's about, we want to make the best use of your time. Oh, interesting. We want to make sure when you come to meetings, there is as fruitful as possible and you're able to contribute. We want to make sure you are crystal clear on what's expected of you and how that ties into all the other pieces, right? And again, when you talk to them in that language, they're very open to this. And then we get into the point of the conversation where you can start to introduce specific tools, protocols, and interventions. Sometimes, you know, some of these exist in some format or another, but there's almost always room for improvement, especially if you're struggling to get your board engaged with fundraising, because at the core of what it takes to get them engaged in fundraising is number one, clear expectations. Number two, sort of a, a toolkit to honor their time and make that outreach efficient. And number three is really about giving them a deep sense of ownership over the work. And what I find is most nonprofit board meetings are a bunch of updates and reports and FYIs to bring them up to speed. And then they go home and they haven't moved the mission forward in any way. And they haven't connected with the mission. They basically got talked at. Absolutely. And so when they do that, they naturally have a much deeper sense of ownership. And that translates to more fundraising engagement. And so, you know, very briefly, specifically what that looks like in terms of tools, and I'm happy to share templates for all of these with your listeners, but, you know, a board member agreement is a great first step. It's basically a collective job description, but it's not, you know, five pages buried in your bylaws written in legalese. It's two to three pages, very plain language, very black and white. What is the job of each and every board member every year? 
Mm. We all agree that we should all be doing these 12 things. And then they sign it along with the chair. So it's an agreement. Ah, It's a contract. And this is an agreement they see before they even get on the board. So they're clear on their responsibilities as board members. Absolutely. It's a very powerful recruitment tool. But back to your question about how do you get your board to start fundraising, it starts with the existing board and getting them to weigh in on what should this document include. It typically winds up similar to my template and it includes fundraising responsibilities. So that's all made explicit there. But then once that's approved, that sets a baseline. It creates accountability and it makes it clear, even though this is a volunteer and a good faith commitment, what exactly is expected of each and every one of us, whether I'm a CEO or a celebrity or formerly homeless or whatever it might be, we are all agreeing that we should do this. Tool one. Tool two is a board matrix. Really, really helpful if you want to recruit or refine your board, that you're inviting intentionality. And rather than saying, anybody know any good board members we should invite? Right. When you put it out there and say, do you happen to know a Latina accountant with good foundation connections or whatever it might be, the likelihood of you finding that goes up exponentially. And the matrix is a pretty simple tool to help you figure out what do you need? What do you have? And then what do we want to focus on? And then finally, the tool to sort of transform board meetings so that they're not just all monologue update and FYI driven is called the consent agenda or a docket agenda. And it includes an organizational dashboard. So just basically like a one page heads up display across about a dozen different indicators. How are we doing both operationally and financially, but also programmatically against our mission? The executive summaries is sort of the meat of the sandwich. That's where anything that would have been on your agenda with the word report or update gets condensed down to no more than two paragraphs. So it's the Cliff Notes version of here's everything you need to know. And then finally are the minutes from the previous meeting, which I like to streamline down to two or three pages and focus exclusively on what are the key things that we need the board to remember, what votes were taken, and most importantly, what commitments were made. This person, this group, or the whole board agreed to blank by this date. Every person in group gets their own highlighter color so I can see visually my homework and did I forget any of it and get it done before the next meeting. And that way you get all those updates out of the way in the first five, 10 minutes, and you free up your time to focus on brainstorming, dialogue, and problem solving, which is really where you get the value out of your board and you solve the problems you didn't know the answers to before the board meeting started. Darian, what does a member who's active in fundraising look like? You know, it really varies from board member to board member. Kay Sprinkle Grace talks about the AAA approach to fundraising, which I think is a, a brilliant framework. But in short, what I would say it does not look like is everybody on the board making asks. What I find to be a huge pitfall is if a board member tells you they're not comfortable asking for money, then don't try to force them to do so. It won't work and they'll resent it and it'll undermine their engagement. But it is at the same time critical that every board member understands that it is critical for them to play a role in fundraising in whatever way it suits them. That could be opening up doors and making intros. It could be coming on pitches and just talking about their own personal involvement and why they're making time. It could be hosting a house party or thanking existing donors. The education process, because anytime you talk to a board member about fundraising, about half the time they'll say, oh, I don't do fundraising and I don't like to ask people for money. They are confused and they understandably are conflating asking for money and they're thinking that is fundraising. And that's like saying the proposal for marriage is dating. 
it is a point of culmination, but there's a lot of work that goes into it and that follows. Wow. And when you help them understand that, then they can appreciate the need, especially if you tell them they won't be forced to do something they're not comfortable with. Then they can get that it's a process and find a place for themselves to fit in, especially if it's required in the board member agreement I just mentioned. Man, this is music to my ears, Darian. My first job out of college was as a fundraiser for the San Francisco Education Fund. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about another aspect of fundraising that you're an expert at, and that is grant writing. And you say that most organizations really rely on writing proposals to foundations, individuals, corporations, et cetera, to fund their programs, but they get mixed results. So what are they doing wrong? Well, first of all, I, I don't actually think a lot of groups are relying on grant writing. And the reason why is when I you know survey an audience of a thousand people and I ask them, how many of you have tried fundraising? All the hands do go up. But then when I ask them, how many of you are still focused heavily on grant writing? All the hands go down. Oh, interesting. Except for very few. And when I ask them why, inevitably they say, oh, we tried grant writing and in short, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. We didn't get the ROI. And if I dig a little further, I almost always hear the exact same thing, which is that we went out there, we did a bunch of research, we identified a set of, you know, the funders that's like, it sounds like they wrote their website just for us. This application is a softball. They should fund us. And then we get declined. Or, you know, maybe we get approved every once in a blue moon, but it's at a quarter of the budget we requested. So grant writing stinks and it's not worth their time. And what I tell those people in short is you're doing it wrong. And when you do it wrong, you're going to get poor results. When you take that model of even if you do a ton of research and write customized proposals for each and every application, you're going to invest a huge amount of time. And if you're lucky, you're going to get a 5% success rate. Most of those approved ones will come in at less than the budget requested, as opposed to the approach that I help associations and nonprofits with generally delivers about a 50% success rate with almost all the grants being approved in full. Wow. The trick is it requires a little bit more upfront work. Yes. Because there's one step of the process that they're missing, which is essentially they're crashing the party. They're showing up you know, when they haven't been invited. And if you take the time to get invited to apply and you get a couple other pieces of information, then you get exponentially better returns. So what that looks like is you're still doing the same kind of research on candor.org and grants.gov and other platforms like that. You're identifying probably 20 or 30 of your most appropriate funders that have the highest capacity and the highest degree of relevance to your cause and, and work. But then the next step, the missing step of the process is spending what typically turns out to be three to nine months knocking on their door over and over again. Cultivation. And securing a call or a meeting. And these people are very busy, so they will generally ignore you for the first five, seven times. But hopefully, eventually, you'll wear down the stone and they will open up, especially if you can leverage a personal relationship or establish subject matter expertise through things like social media. But ultimately, you get the call or the meeting within which you are being invited to apply for funding for a specific program or set of programs with a rationale behind each ah. for a specific dollar amount and asking them to review a draft of the proposal before you formally submit it. And when you do that whole package, especially when you mention your sales background, and that's part of my background too, in the sales world, we talk about consultative selling. 
And yes, when it comes to institutional fundraising, this is less true for individuals and major donors. But when you're talking about companies, foundations, and sort of, you know, the person with whom you're speaking, it's not their money. And they are beholden to the board or a committee, and they've got goals and metrics and outcomes. And so the key to successful fundraising from an institution is really about understanding their goals, their needs, their objectives, and then helping them understand how you can help advance them by funding your organization, your association. And when you can do that in a dialogue, in a conversation, and you leave that meeting, not only with sounds great, get me a proposal, but Mm. sounds great, get me a proposal. I'd love to provide 100,000 of general support because we share your focus on uplifting the most vulnerable members of our population. I'm also really excited to provide 200 grand for the vocational training program because you're helping people help themselves. And I'm agreeing to review a draft of that proposal before you formally submit it on December 1st. So get it to me by November 15th. Boom. Like that's the formula. You're going to get funded. And you're going to get funded and it's going to be for the full amount, you know? And so that's sort of the the little wow judo twist, if you will. And it doesn't take that much more work. It's just a little bit more front loaded. But by the time you submit the grant, it should just be paperwork. And all of the selling, if you will, the fundraising has already taken place in a conversation. Darian, when I worked for the San Francisco Education Fund, my executive director, Gladie Thatcher, used to say the proposal that I wrote was really kind of the last step in the process. But like you said, she had spent months really cultivating the program officers. And so unless I screwed up really badly, we were going to get the money. How interesting. Absolutely. And it's not just the relationship. It's also that, you know, connecting the dots of what this person is on the hook to achieve. They're, you know, again, beholden to their powers that be and helping them very clearly understand how you can help them achieve those goals. I guess it's kind of like I tell my team on the sales side, we never respond to RFPs where they won't take a phone call, they won't meet with us, Mm -hmm. and they don't know who we are. Yeah. Our success rate is like nearly zero. Exactly. Then it's not worth the effort. And you also have to make a bunch of guesses. Yeah. You know, you're trying to help this organization achieve their goals, but you don't know what have they tried before, or what are the things that are absolutely critical, or what are the non-starters, or what's their time frame? what are the extenuating circumstances, budgets, like all those things. And it's that same exact model of looking at it from a fundraising perspective as it relates to institutions. When you get into individuals and major donors, then to your point, those relationships are really critical. And as opposed to, hey, you're you know going to grant out somebody else's money, let me understand your goals, it's much more personal. And the appreciative inquiry process is more about like, what is your personal connection to the issue of homelessness? Oh, your mom was homeless for a while before she was able to get a job. And so you really appreciate the value of those social services, right? And then you can kind of frame it in terms of what's most relevant to them on a personal level. But ultimately, fundraising is about helping the donor or the funder understand how your organization can be a conduit for the type of change they want to advance in the world. Ah. The way I've heard it said is people don't give to you, they give through you. They give through you. That's amazing. You've written two pretty amazing books, very well known. And you know your expertise is clearly showing in this podcast. One's called Nonprofit Fundraising 101. The other one is called Nonprofit Management 101. What's different about these books? There are only about a zillion books written about nonprofit management. 
There sure are. Yeah. I mean, I think actually the publisher pitched me on the first book because it was, again, modeled after the nonprofit boot camp. What's different about both of the books is they are, at their core, practical, actionable, and comprehensive. So they're both written as essentially reference manuals. You could read you know, cover to cover if you want, but both of the books are structured where, hey, we're about to redesign our website. Let me spend 20 minutes and read that chapter. We're about to do a direct mail campaign, or we're about to launch a major donor campaign, or whatever the case may be. So it's sort of intended to be really comprehensive, but tactical, practical, do this, don't do that, here's how to. And that's also my approach with coaching and consulting is you know, as I did that big listening tour and sort of when I first got into the sector, started asking nonprofits what they needed, what I heard was we get a lot of inspiration. We get a lot of abstract concepts and theories and strategic frameworks. What we really need is like, we are busy. We're under-resourced. We've got a huge mission, not enough resources and people. So just tell it to me straight, do this, don't do that. Here's how to. And that's basically become my life's work and really providing philosophy of helping people out. And can we get the books on Amazon? You can. Yeah, they're both available. Nonprofit Management 101 just came out in second edition with a new forward by Van Jones from CNN. And both of those have done really well. They're both bestsellers. And it's been wonderful to see how many thousands of readers have been able to benefit from both of them. I'll have to check them out. Darian, you have shared some amazing wisdom with us today. If I have listeners who would like to take advantage of your expertise, how would they contact you? Well, first of all, let me just say, anytime I write a book or do a keynote or a podcast interview like this, I always am willing to make a blanket offer that I I will make myself available for a 15 to 20 minute pro bono consultation. If people want to share a little bit of the details of their organization, their challenges, et cetera, and I can at least point them in the right direction if I can't help them myself. So always happy to offer that up. If folks want to reach out to me, they can just go to helpingpeoplehelp.com. There's a contact form there. There's also links to the books and feel free to reach out to me and happy to schedule a time to chat with any of your listeners. I might be able to help. Well, listeners, mention the Association's Thrive podcast and you'll get a free coaching call from Darian, which is amazing and so valuable. Darian, any closing thoughts about anything, fundraising, the environment that we're in and what it takes to thrive? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting time. I'm putting together a talk that I'm delivering in Stanford in a couple of weeks that's looking at the future of fundraising. And there's a lot of trends that have been catalyzed and expedited because of the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, we had the George Floyd sort of inspired racial reckoning in this country. There's a lot happening around AI and the future of work. And then we've got some pretty exciting developments with the fields of participatory philanthropy and trust-based philanthropy, where nonprofits can get access to longer-term general operating support with less paperwork, which is what we all create. Mm. And so I, I think just being agile and responsive, remembering that fundamentally there's a story, I won't go into it in detail, but the punchline is that when we think about fundraising, the single greatest challenge or obstacle that I feel like all nonprofit space is all too often, we take this tin cup approach and sort of begging for alms approach to fundraising. And there's a story about a young man who'd gone to become a philanthropist and a celebrity who was in a philosophy class hearing about, is this glass half full or half empty? All the students couldn't figure it out, but his grandmother with a second grade education said, oh, well, it depends on whether you're pouring or drinking. And when nonprofits fundraise from a tin cup perspective, 
It is rooted in this idea that we are the drinkers because we rely on charitable contributions to do this work. But ultimately, the thing I want to say is nothing could be further from the truth. We are the pourers. We are the nurturers of society. And as I shared earlier, what we as a global movement with a capital M, all the nonprofits, all the associations out there do is that we connect people and organizations with resources to the change they want to see in the world. And that is sacred and holy work that I'm privileged to do and to, to help my clients with. And so in closing, I just want to thank all of the pours and the nurturers out there. And I want to thank them not only on behalf of your podcast and on me personally and helping people help, but I want to thank them on behalf of the thousands of people and organizations that they serve and just acknowledge their service and their leadership. It's really been an honor. And I hope you'll leave in this interview, not only inspired, but inspired to action. Darian, I hope you'll come back in the future and tell us more about the amazing organizations that you're working with and the next chapter. And before you go on your next sabbatical, you know, you'll have to tell us, or maybe when you come back from your next sabbatical, you'll, you'll tell us about the journey. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.